Well, every sermon is always different. I wish there was a form I could say, this sermon's going to go this way every time, and it never goes that way. Uh, and this is one of them. This is a passage out of Matthew 17. I haven't heard anybody preach from the pulpit. And um, I've preached it 40 years ago from the pulpit. And uh, I've had to go back and correct some things. And so um, there'll be a little fishing in here. And there'll be some other interesting details. But the biggest thing is God is in this miracle. So let's pray for a moment. Father, give us ears to hear. Let us, us lay aside the weights and distractions and the things that clutter our hearing. May we see Jesus clearly in this miracle and what he did that sometimes we don't slow down enough to see. Slow us down that we will fall more in love with our Savior. In his name we pray. Well, this particular miracle, it's called the temple tax miracle, recorded in Matthew 17, 24 through 27, it is only recorded in this gospel. It's not recorded in any other gospel. It's only here. And some people think it was because Matthew was a tax collector and he was attracted to it, and that's very possible. Um, but it's a simple miracle, but it's not. And when you look at all the commentators on this particular miracle, they all focus on um, some certain aspects of it, and uh, I'll comment briefly on those aspects, but I want to move a different way with it because of the pattern in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's an interesting pattern on all three Gospels, not John, but there's an interesting pattern that surrounds these events. So let's read. When they had come to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, Yes. When he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And upon his saying, From strangers. Jesus said to him, consequently, the sons are exempt. That means the Son of God is exempt. And his children are exempt. But lest we give them offense, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you will find a stator, four drachma, basically. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Now, I grew up fishing on the Colorado River in the state of Texas. And we fished it probably about every way you can fish it. Nets, trolling, rocks, shores, deep channel fishing, and so forth. Night, day, early morning, you name it. And then when I got to be a professor, I had no time to fish. And so the last six or seven years, my sons and I have gotten into it, and that is our time. 
We have rich time around fishing. But if you've ever been around fishing, it's a game. It's always who caught the most. Who caught the most? And my sons are the world's worst about that. But it's bragging rights only for a few hours, and then we dismiss it. In this case, this fish store, there's only one fish. And it only takes one to communicate what God wants them to learn. And so we start with some veiling or veiled truth. You have to look at, and I've listed down the passages, Matthew 16, 13 through 16. So you can turn there if you want as we read through these. These are all, all, everything out of Matthew, so we wouldn't have to look very far. But I'm trying to put together the time sequence of everything going on. My training as a time series analyst in statistics and in the scriptures is I'm always interested in the time sequence because that gives me a sense of what's going on. And so that's what we have here. Matthew 16, 13 through 16. Jesus says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But who do you say I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter answered. Right answer. The second occasion occurs in Matthew 16, 20 through 23. Now, when you go to the Gospels, you will find three occasions, and in Mark they're obvious. Matthew they're a little harder to find, and Luke they're there. Three occasions where Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to be persecuted, I'm going to die, I'm going to raise again. Three times he tells them about the passions. The first time recorded in Matthew, he warned the disciples, verses 20 through 23, that they should tell no one that he was a Christ. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, be killed and raised on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. Thou shalt never have this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting, you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Wow. One good thing from Peter, one very bad. And this is the first occasion on the reference to the passage. Just a little later in Matthew 17, 1 through 9. Peter, James, and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter again says, It is good for us to be here. I will make three tabernacles for you, Moses, and Elijah. And God speaks from the heavens. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
Listen to him. The second passage, the next passage we're going to look at, Matthew 17, 1 through 9. No, we just went there. Matthew 17, 22 through 23, we have a second time, the second discussion of the passion. And they were gathered together in Galilee, and Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised again the third day. And they were deeply grieved. They were deeply grieved. Let's look at a statement, and I didn't write down the reference to it right, so let me see if I can find it real quickly. I do that every now and then, particularly when I prepare a sermon up two weeks ahead of time. I had to because of my schedule. I had a book I was trying to finish, and so I had to free my week up. And so I just had a little bits and pieces, but that's never good for a pastor to have bits and pieces yet to finish. Oh, okay. Mark chapter 9. Turn with me. An interesting phrase in the Mark account. This is the second account of him explaining the passion to come. He explains it, verse 31, but verse 32, look at this. They did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask. Did not understand. Well, has God hidden the truth? Or are the disciples hidden truth from themselves? Were they behind a veil of self? Very possible. But it's interesting. If Peter had put a question to Jesus about the passion he would have been exposed to not knowing it all. So he couldn't be the greatest because Jesus didn't tell him in private. So the best way for all the disciples so that they all win and we can continue to debate this thing of who's the greatest for years and years to come is we don't ask anything. And that's what they did. So these disciples all had the same problem Peter had, except Peter got caught at it. And I think this temple tax miracle is for Peter and for us to learn. So Peter is exposed here. Now, and one of the things is I think we're going to see that Peter was very prideful of being presumptuous to say what he said. Notice, when the temple tax collectors came, 
in Capernaum, they asked Peter about whether the teacher was pay the temple tax. Well, Exodus 30 says everyone, every male third 20 and older had to pay. There was a census. They had to pay that tax. Usually it was once in a lifetime, but it had moved to be every year. And usually, uh, and it was a half shekel or two drama tax. And, but Peter presumptuously said, yes, he didn't even ask Jesus. Think about that. Didn't even ask Jesus. We do the same thing. We're presumptuous. We don't even ask God. Prayer about certain situations or talking to him directly, we never go there. And I think presumptuous stacks up. And it makes us more presumptuous in the future. But I love how Jesus responds to Peter. I probably wouldn't. I'm a type A. He responded with gentleness and humility. And for the record, those are two ingredients that someone who is discipling men and women must have. Gentleness and humility. Jesus, in his foreknowledge, knew what Peter had said, but with a divine logical argument, he revealed that the Son of God was exempt from the ta any tax on his father's house. But to avoid offense, a stumbling block for the tax collectors and the people around him, and people, he humbly agreed to pay the tax in a unique way. He said, go to the sea, 1727, the display in all that happens here in that one verse, the perfections of God stand out. And I want to take you through them. And I want you to go through them, work through them on your own so that you can see what's there. Go to the sea and throw in a hook. Take the first fish that comes up and you'll know, open its mouth. You'll find a stator worth four dracca. Take that and pay the tax for you and me. Now, most people are familiar with fishing in the New Testament. These Peter, James, and John, they were professional. They used nets. And a lot of the fish in the Sea of Galilee, which is fresh water, they operate a lot in schools. And so they would let out a net or drag nets between two boats, or they'd have a cast net from the shore. They would throw that way. It wasn't very frequently they did what we call line fishing. As you just throw out a line. We do that all the time nowadays when we fish, but we're not professional fishermen. They throw out a line. And what's interesting here in the passage, it doesn't tell us whether there's bait on the line. Very important to note, no mention of bait. 
Now, I have had the fortune of throwing a hook in a line into a school of fish and catching fish. It can be done. But there's more here. The fish. There are two kinds of fish that would be possible here. And I, I'm not making a case. I want you to listen to it. This is not a big fish story. I've done my homework. The first fish is called must, must, M-U-S-H-T, must. It's a type of tilapia. Very tasty from what I understand. But they don't eat bait. They live off plankton like whales do. Oh, wow. That's different. The other fish, the biney, is a carp-like fish. And if you know anything about carp, they tend to feed off the bottom. They're very big. The tilapia, these tilapia are about three feet, probably max. Tilapia could be about 30, 13 feet. Big fish. And the biney, the carp-type fish, guess what their favorite food is? Sardines. They like the flash in the water. And so they could have easily gone for just a hook because of the flash. But the tilapa, the muschi, the female has an interesting characteristic. She carries her eggs in her mouth. So she would have had room, if not eggs in her mouth, to have picked up the coin in her mouth. And this coin, the scriptures talk about here, stater, it's the size of a quarter, probably lighter. But it was in the mouth. Now, if it had been in the mouth a long time, it would have gone, they probably would have swallowed it. So there's a timing thing here, folks. You've got to realize there's a timing thing going on here. If that coin is in the mouth, it's not been there very long. And then we have the place. Well, Capernaum was Peter's regular fishing place. That's where they sent their boat out of Capernaum. And most fishermen have their favorite places that they fish from the shore. They like to go to those places. I've caught fish there before. I'll go back there. They keep going back to those favorite places. Most fishermen won't tell you their favorite places. They don't want you to know. They guard that. But Peter probably had a favorite place. But Jesus knew where he was going to go. And then the cast. I don't know about you, and I'm a pretty good caster. To hit the same spot is hard. 
And this cast was perfect. You've got to understand, there was perfect timing in everything here. Everything. The coin, the fish, the cast, the type of fish, the place, the time appointed for the cast. And you need to realize this coin was probably not swallowed. The fish was not killed. It doesn't say that, but it was in the mouth. Because Peter, go, you could just open the mouth, take the coin out. If he'd swallowed the fish, he couldn't have taken the coin out of the mouth. And this is very much, hopefully it reminds you of some other fish story, the book of Jonah. And the well. I'm not sure it was a well yet. I'm still researching that. But it was an awful big fish. And so in this miracle, there's sovereignty. There's omnipotence. There's omniscience, omnipresence, the sufficiency of God's way. This whole miracle is dripping with the sovereignty of God, how he's in control of everything. He micromanages it all. And he micromanages it all for our good and his glory. If Peter was paying attention to all the details, he should have been humbled. He should have been humbled. And we see a little later in, in Matthew, the third time, where Jesus explains the passion that's going to happen. And you could understand now, I want you to see this, you can understand why what happened to Peter when he denied the Lord his three times, that was necessary to break him. God was interested in Peter. And God can't use people unless they're broken and willing to go where he wants them to go and do what he wants them to do. If God's so much interested in Peter that way, what do you think he is about us? Same way. He's interested in us the same way. Well, let's look at some of the reflections or applications here. I don't know if you've had heard uh, Chris Tomlin has a song called Sovereign. I tend to listen to some music on uh, videos. I want stuff that will encourage me. I look for things that sort of fall in with my sermon. And I was at my church this last week, and this song was sung there, Sovereign. And so I've put some of the words down here. And if you get a chance, listen to it. It's phenomenal. It's worshipful. Sovereign in the mountain air. Sovereign on the ocean floor. With me in the calm, with me in the storm. Sovereign in my greatest joy, sovereign in my deepest cry. With me in the dark, with me at the dawn. 
His sovereign, God's sovereign, covers the biggest and smallest things and the timing of it all. He's in control of it all. Even the wickedness we see today, he has allowed for a reason. COVID was allowed for a reason. It was, I think it was allowed to expose the church. I really do. And some of my seminarians agree with me there. God is in control of it all. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, he's in control of it all. Hate to admit it, I'd like to say I have some control, but I have none. Number two, truth can be veiled by God, and he does, or by our own hardness of heart due to preconceived ideas, unwillingness to die to self, or hearing that's not empowered by the Holy Spirit. Tozer has a chapter in one of his books he calls Hearing Worthily. You've got to be prepared to hear. I sit down every morning and say, God, let me hear. Open up something new. Let me see from your word. Speak to me in my prayer walks. I want to hear your voice. I don't want anything else. I want your voice to be ringing my head. Number three, the humility and gentleness of Christ when dealing with Peter and the tax collectors is awesome. I'm impressed. We should be impressed with that. As one understands this event, one sees why Peter and his pride had to be broken completely before God could use him. And Peter writes, humble yourself, therefore, in the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. He may exalt you at the proper time. I can look back to some of the times I was broken. There's been several. They've been painful, but they have been rich. They've made some phenomenal changes in how I see things. Four, God told the three disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration to listen to him. That same command is valid today. However, we listen to so many voices today that we cannot hear God's voice for ourselves. We just can't hear it. It snuffs it out. I even have to turn off music. I have, I have a, uh, a memory stick with songs I've chosen over my ministry years, and I listen to it quite a bit. Some of them are not new. Some of them are. And sometimes I just, I've got to turn it out. I've got to listen to what you want me to learn, God, or hear. And as I pray and thank, give me your thoughts. There's too many voices. And we have a media that doesn't tell us anything right. But I guarantee you, God tells it right. He always tells it right. He goes to the core. He was interested in Peter. And I have felt like a Peter sometimes in my past. And I'm glad. I'm grateful. I give thanks for what God did. You bring me low. Number five, this miracle is a full display of Jesus' perfections. Slow down and see his hands in the perfections today. 
Last night, I've, as some of you know, I feed cats, and I have to feed them at night. And um, I have this one park, I'm sort of a volunteer for the park. I had to take pictures of people that were vandalism, so I had their license plate, so I could report them on Monday. And so um, I, after I did that, I fed the foxes and the cats, and I had another group of cats to take care of. And I got out of the car and fed them all and went home, and I had no phone. I says, I must have dropped it right after I took the pictures. I said, my wife said, are you, are you concerned? Well, we'll pray about it. But I, I know it. God has it. And sure enough, we went back. My wife kept dialing my number and dialing my number. Wasn't the first place we looked. Kept dialing my number, and, and finally I saw it sitting sort of in the road, could have been run over, protected, not damaged. God had protected it. God is interested in the little things. The little things. Do we retreat to him the little? If we don't retreat there, we won't retreat to him when it's big. And we won't see what he's done. It's neat to serve a God like that. It's a privilege. And lastly, there's another foreshadowing of the ransom that Jesus is going to pay for all mankind in this miracle. All mankind. He paid it. Now, I want to tell you something. I was doing this on Word, and Word would not let me put the word mankind in. It wanted humankind. So you need to be aware the culture is trying to edit us. And I told my wife that. She said, I can't believe that. I can show it to you. I can probably show you some other words the same way. God's still in control. He still loves us. Let's pray. Father, I feel like I'm an imperfect vessel, very imperfect to have given this sermon, but I'm excited about it. I'm excited about what I see of you, how you use all the little things of life to, to get our attention. May we find time to sit back and meditate on our events of our day so that we can see you and give you the glory and honor for all of it. What a neat God. I pray we will be humble like Peter and continue to give you thanks in his name.